Hi, everyone. This is Amanda, and I bet I totally just caught you off guard because you thought I was going to say Close Source is brought to you by the following sustainable brands. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk to all of you really quick about that because last week someone left a review on Apple Podcasts saying that there were an awful lot of ads in the beginning of the episode, and that was really appalling, disconcerting, or disconnected, I guess, for an anti-capitalist podcast. So I just want to address that for a moment. Um, I would definitely describe myself as anti-capitalist. I think our current capitalist system is broken. I think that workers suffer while the wealthier get wealthier, and our social safety net is a nightmare, I also think that the inherent greed of capitalism gone awry is leading to the destruction of our planet and the exploitation of its people. And I am always down to have a conversation about anti-capitalism. So maybe, maybe I need to do a little bit more of that on the pod. However, I currently live in a capitalist world. So do you. And therefore, I need to make an income in order to pay for rent, food, healthcare, internet, cat food, all of it. And so I am trying to make a living off of the work I put into Close Horse. And by the way, it also costs money to make the podcast. I didn't know that when I started. It's a surprising amount, but it's doable with all of your support. I don't want to sell stuff to you like a lot of the other podcasts do in the way of t-shirts, tote bags, and all the other stuff that I rage against on a regular basis. It doesn't feel right for Close Horse, and it doesn't feel right for me. So I'm trying to rely on Patreon, which is a hard ask. It's saying, hey, how would you like to give money and receive little to no physical objects in return? That's kind of a wild concept. The ads in the beginning, you know, the part where I say, Close Horse is brought to you by the following sustainable brands. Those are Pegasus patrons who pay $25 a month to support my work. I wanted to give small brands and makers a chance to get exposure while also hopefully bringing in a little bit of an income for myself. I truly believe small business is the future. So that felt like a good decision for me. And I stand by it because actually the Pegasus patrons, they're $25 per month. They are covering the cost of producing the podcast. To be fully transparent, I do not currently make a living off of Close Horse, not even close. Like I said, Patreon is currently covering the expenses of making the show, my phone bill, and my health insurance. I'm definitely facing a crossroads where I have to decide how to make a living off of the podcast or move away from it. I'm considering a lot of things because the work I'm doing here is really important to me. And every time I hear from one of you, that it's changing the way you look at things, it's spurring conversations with the people around you, that it's motivating and exciting you to change the world, that, that's the fuel that keeps me going, that makes me double down on my commitment to Close Horse. Like I said, I'm considering a lot of things to keep it going, to keep myself going, like offering business advice sessions for small businesses, going on tour, throwing events, bringing on clients, and hopefully it will all work out. But anyone who has questions about the finances of the podcast and the decisions I make, 
you are 100% invited to reach out and ask me anytime. I will be fully transparent about what's going on around here. In fact, I would prefer that you ask me directly rather than leave, you know, a jerky, passive-aggressive review on Apple, because that affects my ability to get new listeners and, you know, make a living. Do I wish that Medicare for All and Universal Basic Income existed? Hell yeah! Then I wouldn't need a Patreon, but unfortunately, that's just not the world I live in right now. And you know what? My work has value, and there's nothing wrong with trying to get paid for it. And I'm so grateful for all of your support. I'm so excited about the work that I'm doing here. And I hope you are too. (laughs) And I can't wait to have even more conversations with you about there's, there's still so much more for us to talk about. All right. Well, I hope you're not too annoyed with hearing that, but I just really wanted to make it clear and I wanted to ensure that you heard it. Let's get down to business. Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at Picnic Wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at ShiftWheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. 
But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. 
Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that firmly believes that making burritos is highly skilled labor. I mean, seriously, have you tried to make a burrito at home? Because mine are a hot mess. I've never successfully made a burrito. And people who make burritos should be paid for their skills. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 83. Meredith is back after our Spencer's episode to talk about candy bras. No, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, I wish. I could do another episode about Spencer's. But actually, she's here to talk about layoffs in the fashion industry. And she asked the question, which I just don't think we can answer. What's the best way to conduct a mass layoff? Oh, man, I can't wait to hear all of your opinions on that question. After that, I'm going to talk to you about a subject that has been driving me bananas. The idea that raising wages, giving workers a living wage, leads to higher prices. Before we jump into all of that, I would like to take a moment to thank some of my latest supporters on Patreon. First is Susie Hinders, the person behind Lazy Susan Vintage. She upcycles all kinds of textiles into some pretty amazing clothing. And she has one of my favorite Instagram taglines ever. One man's toxic sludge is another man's potpourri. Also, remember potpourri because my mom and my grandma we're so into that. I'm sure it's so bad for the environment. And it was always simmering 
all over our house in weird little tiny ceramic crockpot things that were just for potpourri. And I, God, I, I hope potpourri doesn't cause cancer because I'm definitely doomed. What a weird time. That was a weird popular thing, right? <laughs> I still see potpourri unopened and ready to go at thrift stores out here. So if you're in the mood for some, let me know. Anyway, thank you for your support and very kind messages, Susie. Next is Kelsey Tyler, who runs Kind of Swell Vintage based in Seattle. Through June 30th, she's donating funds to plant a tree for every order placed. And no, she didn't ask me to say that. I just discovered it doing my standard patron internet stalking, and I thought it was really cool. So, well, thank you so much for your support, Kelsey, and what a great idea to plant some trees. Next, we have Sarah Coffey, who is completely mysterious on the internet, but nonetheless, thank you so much for supporting Close Horse, Sarah. If you would like to support Close Horse via Patreon, please check out patreon.com slash podcast, or you can make a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions, or you can do neither and just keep listening because I'm glad to have you here. Did you know that as of this week, so we're in like, I guess the second week of June, the middle of June. We have published more than 100 posts at clotheshorse.world, and almost all of that content was created by members of our community. Last month, Meredith wrote an amazing essay called When Less Is Not More about how her workload increased as the fast fashionification of the industry kicked into high gear. You know, more styles to develop, in less time, with smaller and smaller staff. She wrote, In addition to producing more garments with less time, corporate downsizing is another trend writ large in the fashion industry. The company I worked for prior to my current job was medium-sized. Our office had about 100 people in it during peak employment, with another 150 or so across two other offices. In my nearly six years there, I weathered four layoffs, Three out of four could be considered mass layoffs. Our team was constantly struggling with the question of how to do more with less. We were all super hardworking and dedicated employees, but we consistently missed key deadlines. This brought down the team morale because, ridiculous or not, deadlines are made to be met and our performance as a department was being judged by it. I urge you to go back and read this essay. If you haven't already, I'll share the link in the show notes. This piece really, really resonated with me as someone who found myself having to do more and more with less and less as my career progressed. It wasn't until I lost my job at the beginning of the pandemic that I actually had the time to look back and see how that trend had played out. It was just like I was too tired for all those years to actually take a step back and say, hey, wait a minute, what's happening here, <laughs> you know? Immediately after I read the final draft of Meredith's essay, I texted her to say, hey, you have to come back on the pod to talk about your essay. And, you know, while we're at it, let's finally do that Spencer's episode we've been talking about. So today... We're going to talk about layoffs and how spectacularly common they are in the fashion industry. And it's weird. It's like a, 
dirty secret, which, you know, one of many dirty secrets that the fashion industry has. But oftentimes these layoffs get little to no press coverage. Even during the pandemic, I just didn't see the content out there. But as you'll hear from Meredith and me, we both learned through a wise coworker of ours that layoffs, mass layoffs are just a regular part of a career in fashion. So let's jump right into it. About a month ago, you wrote an essay for Close Horse Style World, and you talked a lot about what it's like to work in fast fashion on the corporate side. And specifically, you talked a lot about how much work there is, how there's never enough people working there, how stressful it is, and that you have seen this shift Mm -hmm. in your career, right? Like as this has gotten worse. And it took me back to when we were working at ModCloth, where there were so many layoffs. Yes. So many layoffs. Mm-hmm. And I have to preface this by saying ModCloth was actually one of the best places I've worked. Absolutely. Probably the best, actually. Right, 100%. right. And we had, how many rounds of layoffs did you work there? Through? I went through four rounds of layoffs. Whoa. And, like, I, I felt so weird because I survived all of them. Like, it was a weird, like, survivor guilt, you know, where I was like, why? Like, especially at the last one, I was like, why am I still here? You know, <laughs> like, you laid off half yeah. the company. Why? Um, so it was, yeah, it was weird, but four layoffs. And when I had started at ModCloth, the first so the first week, either the first or second week I was there, there was a, a mass layoff. And that was in 20, when did I start? 2014, I think. I think, yeah, 2014, either 2013 or 2014. Um, there was a mass layoff. And I had just left Lucky Brand where there had been a mass layoff. So like mass layoff being 50% of the staff or more being laid off. And it was at that time that I was like, oh, this just is a thing that happens in this industry. Like uh, uh, up until then, I had never experienced it. And I was working on the junior side and we were just busy all the time and we never had enough people. So it was kind of like the opposite thing where, you know, we couldn't lay anyone off because there was just no Mm -hmm. one that you could possibly lay off. Um, so it was like a, a a come to Jesus moment where I was like, okay, this is just something that I should expect to happen continually throughout my career. And, and it proved to be true, unfortunately. Um, but I also want to give it a huge shout out since we're talking about the article that I wrote. Um, the team at Clothes Horse is amazing. Uh, like <laughs> they really are where my idea started and where it ended up were like two polar opposites. And it, we like went over multiple edits and reviews and changed and reshaped everything. And it was such an amazing experience and everyone's so dedicated and believes in you. And it was just such a positive experience. And I, I just, and everyone's volunteering. So I really am appreciative that, 
you gave me the opportunity to be on the blog because it really, you guys do such an amazing job and put so much energy into it. It's, it's really amazing. So I just want to thank you and everyone that's involved with the blog because it was truly like the cool, like I felt like I was a real writer and like that I was, you know, writing <laughs> for a magazine and it, it was really awesome. So I, I really would encourage anyone that's just thinking about it to do it and just to be open to the process. It's going to take a little while to get through it or maybe you're like a superstar writer and you'll get through like your first draft who knows um but it's really a fun process and really high level professional people working on the blog so thank you oh yeah for sure i mean the team is so incredible and i see the posts on the blog and i'm like i wow everything has been so amazing i definitely get very emotional sometimes when i'm reading a post on there and i'm just like wow i can't believe like this is on close horse, yeah. you know, yeah. like it's just, I'm just so, I'm just so impressed, not just by the team, but also by all of the people in our community who have taken the risk, who have taken the time to work on something with us. I think you, you hit on something there that I think is really important that a lot of people outside the industry might not know, which is that there are layoffs all the time mm-hmm. in the fashion industry. And that big layoff at ModCloth that was like happened when you first started uh, was the first time I'd ever experienced a layoff at at any job. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't, I didn't get laid off, but like had been around for something like that. And I didn't think that was the kind of thing that happened often. Yeah. And I remember being very, very upset about it. The whole experience was very traumatic mm-hmm. um, because we'd come in, we'd gone to a meeting. We were told that we were, there were going to be some layoffs and it wasn't that business was bad, it wasn't bad. It was just the numbers weren't working out. Yep. And so they had to cut some staff. And we were told to go back to our desks and they would call us if we were being laid off. But what had really happened is that they had already grabbed the people as they came out of the room and took them into a room and laid them off. So we were all sitting there like our hearts pounding, unable to work, waiting to get this call. And then about an hour in, we realized that there were people who were missing oh, God. and yeah. that the layoffs had had really happened. So it was really, my anxiety was just like residual the rest of the day. I couldn't concentrate. And I went over to the side of the office where your team worked. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to, to um, Christine. Mm-hmm. Christine's been in the industry for a long time in LA. And she was like, I've been laid off by just about every job I've had. You know, this is just like how your, how your career is take shape, how it rolls out, I guess, in in specifically in the LA garment industry. Like you just, you get laid off, you get another job. Like this is how it is. And it sucks. And it's definitely like given my family some really hard times. You know, we talked about it for a long time and I was like, wow, like I had no idea that this was a thing that happened a lot in fashion. Right. Uh, I just like, you would hear about like, oh, well, you know, this, the limited closed and all their people got laid off and you'd be like, oh, well, that makes sense. Right. But like not in businesses that weren't going out of business. Right. Um, and then we had another layoff. I don't even know if it was a full year later. I don't um, think it was. Yeah. I don't think it was a year later. And that one was, that one was totally based on just like a disaster where basically, we were going to get a new warehouse management system, which is really important. It's like how the warehouse 
tracks what they have and knows, you know, tells the website how much inventory they have and when stuff is shipped out, you know, it helps them create the labels and pick the orders and just ship everything. I mean, it's really, really important. Something went really massively wrong from a technological perspective. It didn't communicate with any of our other software. So it didn't communicate with our website. It didn't communicate with any of the like programs that we used, like, you know, to track orders Mm -hmm. and our receipts and sales and stuff like that. It didn't, it didn't connect with anything. Um, And so this was like a nightmare scenario. Um, So a week has passed and there's no resolution. And this turns into weeks. This literally turns into months. (sighs) We actually miss the entire sort of like what you would call in the juniors world back to school Mm -hmm. shopping era. I I guess we wouldn't call it that at ModCloth, but like that, like July, August, September time period. So a whole quarter. And during that time period, not only were we unable to receive any new product at all, we were unable to ship most orders. They were doing like a manual thing. So it was like a trickle of orders going out. We were canceling a ton of orders because we couldn't fulfill them. On top of that, we had new shipment of stuff that we'd had on order, just piling up, piling up, piling up in the warehouse, out in the parking lot, under tarps, you name it. Months and months and months of product that wasn't available to purchase on the site because it couldn't be received because the warehouse management system wasn't working and we couldn't pay vendors. So vendors were freaking out. They were like cutting us off, demanding their money, blah, blah, blah. And so what happens is we missed a quarter of a year of sales because of this. And so they had to do layoffs. Yep. Yep. And that time it was like, not a surprise, I guess, because we were like, things are bad. Yep. It was worst case scenario as far as implementing that system could have been. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a nightmare. And so then we did more layoffs and this time around, I still felt really upset about it, but like talking to Christine and realizing that this was like the way things work, I I got it. But like after our previous round of layoffs, uh, we were shorthanded. We didn't have enough people to do our work and we were work. We were all doing the work of like one and a half people, you know? Mm -hmm. And I could feel, I could feel that, that pinch, you know? Definitely. Uh, Christine would always say, if you want a stable job, this isn't it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) She was very blunt, but realistic about it because she had been through so many layoffs herself. And I think I too was educated talking to her with all of her experiences and how many companies just fold, you know, like there's, there's so many things that are just out of your control as a worker bee you know, and Mm -hmm. you're always, because retail is so volatile and so up and down and so many changes happen over time, it just makes it, I feel like slightly more susceptible to layoffs than other industries might be because there, there is so much constant change, at least in this millennia, right? I mean, I'm sure, I, I used to work with this woman uh, when I first started working. So at the time when I was working with her, she was in her 60s already. And she would tell me stories of the 90s and like the heyday of like she companies were just like bleeding money 
to their employees. Like they would go on these extravagant trips to Turkey and to China. Like like, just like, because, you know, you couldn't do so much over the internet. So you had to go to these places to do your sourcing, to work with your factories and all that stuff. And she had worked for, I believe it was limited brands and traveled. She was like, yeah, I have an associate's degree and I have traveled all over the country and all over the world. And I've got gotten to do so many amazing things because at that time it was just like everybody was making money everyone was doing great retail was on fire i mean that's when all the specialty stores and like the idea of a lifestyle brand came around so people were just like printing money at that time and then obviously there was a dip in 2001 with 9-11 but things rebounded until 2008 when the world kind of came crashing down. And I feel like that's when the paradigm shift started happening with all the fast fashion and the changing of the calendar and the cadence to which merchandise was dropped. So many things were a result of that giant economic crash. And like, how do we service this customer that in the early 2000s, we were pushing luxury $300 jeans, and now nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it kind of you had a reposition, everything was like a repositioning. And that's when I joined Lucky. It was very weird to me because I had come from juniors where we were the designers were going to market monthly and taking lines monthly. And they would take about a hundred styles, a hundred to two, sometimes 200 styles, depending on the market, obviously April um, and August were the biggest ones for like, you know, spring, summer, and then back to school. And it was just this crazy fast pace. We were just busy and like, there was no time to even think there. And then I get to lucky brand in 2011 And they are still reeling from the crash. They are only putting out goods in bodies, like repeat bodies, best-selling bodies, Mm -hmm. just revising the prints, sometimes changing the fabric. It was very conservative. The assortment was so small and so conservative because their mindset at the time was like, we just want to get in the black again. Like We just Mm want to be profitable. And so it was actually a very genius strategy where they're like, we're going to focus on denim because that's what people are coming here for. We're going to have some clothes. At the time when I joined, they were like thinking about starting their plus size line, but it was still kind of like, is it happening? Is it not happening? We're not sure. Like they just were not spending money and developing newness. And I was only at Lucky Brand for two and a half years. And by the time I left, it was it was essentially operating on fast fashion cadence. I mean, we would have a sometimes under 50% adoption rate when we would do line adoption. Like the, we would develop so many things and then they would just get dropped. And then you'd have to develop new things, which essentially became chase items at that point because they were late. That whole idea of like chase definitely came into my life when I was working at Lucky Brand. Um, And we were also doing outlet product. And so outlet, when I first started, was more of like what you would think outlet would be, where it was just like, oh, we have this leftover fabric, so let's put it into this body. And that's what Mm -hmm. outlet was. But outlet, when I left, was its own full development, 
men's, women's dresses, all like every category was an outlet and it had a separate designer, separate team. And we were putting out products specifically for outlet. Um, and, and we added plus and like it, it exploded and kids, we were making like leather jackets for kids. Jesus. Yeah. Like, and they would sell for like $300 retail and you're just like, what the, your kid's going to wear it for like three months and then grow out of it. Like it was just like mind boggling all the stuff we were doing. And that was in two and a half years. So I, I really like, that's like a case study for me because when I look back on it now, I, I really see the strings and I'm like, wow, there was a lot going on. But it wasn't working because by the time I left, that's when they had this just gigantic, the company got sold and we had this massive layoff. All the people that had worked there for over a decade, you know, some people had been there with Gene and Barry from the beginning and those people were targeted in the layoff because they made the most money. They had the Mm -hmm. most, you know, vacation time and like they cost too much. So they chopped them out, you know, and, but there were also, and I kind of touched on this in the article as well. Sometimes it's necessary in like those bigger corporations to go through a restructuring because over time you get kind of clunky, right? It's like a a snowball rolling down a hill, like gradually accumulating snow, make getting bigger, getting bigger, but it doesn't always make sense. And they're at lucky there were definitely people there where I was like, so wait, what do you do? You know, like they're just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like from the old guard when they were making everything in LA and and nothing was being made in LA at that point. So but these people still were employed and you know, you felt bad for them because you're like, man, like you've now worked here for 15 years. It's it's maybe one of the few things that's actually on your resume. And you really haven't been doing a whole lot in the last like five years, you know, and it's just like, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of them were older and they probably just thought like, hey, I'm just going to ride this out and then retire. But it it never was able to happen. So Sometimes it can be good to help clear out some of the clutter. And when you're in those big um, corporations, you know, especially because at one point Liz Claiborne owned Lucky Brand, it was super corporate. Like it was so hierarchical, you know, everyone had a title, your role and responsibility and your, you know, whether or not people listen to you was totally like wherever you were at on the totem pole. I was pretty low down there, so no one really cared about anything that I said there, which really <laughs> sucked. Um, but I was kind of astounded going from this like crazy, like chaotic zoo of a junior's world into this place where I was like, "Oh my god, it's like rank and file." You know, it was it couldn't have mm-hmm. been more different than my previous experience. So it was it was very interesting. I think that there were not a lot of fashion layoffs prior to fast fashion, the the rise of fast fashion. And obviously there were a shit ton of layoffs in 2008, right around the financial mm-hmm. crisis. I was waiting to get laid off and didn't. My company actually didn't do that, but they kind of punished us all by not having any wage increases or promotions for two years, which set back yeah. everybody's career. It may have been better to just lay, lay us off. Yeah. Um, but I noticed that these stories about these random layoffs, I mean, they were never random, right? They always 
involved them like not making profit or if it was a startup, they just didn't have any money, like that kind of thing. I noticed them becoming more and more common and not reported in the media. Even the layoffs that happened in the fashion industry during COVID were not, you you didn't read about them anywhere. Yeah. But they were still happening regularly. I would meet people constantly who had been part of some reorg, some restructure at a fast fashion brand. And I swear it's because the reality at the end of the day is fast fashion really doesn't work financially. Like if you really want to make even more styles, even more product, you can't do it with a full staff and still be profitable at those price points. Like it just, it's, it's just a model that doesn't work at all. And it leaves you very, very vulnerable. You miss one month of sales and you've got to lay people off. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's another thing that we don't really talk about is that fast fashion has a very human impact, even on the people who are working in the offices to create the product. Absolutely. It's very disheartening, you know, on the surface, obviously you go through a layoff and you can be very frustrated because sometimes the people that are laid off, they, you know, it's for political reasons, right? It's not just because they need to reduce headcount or whatever. Like when you know that someone was targeted in a layoff, it definitely makes you a bit resentful. Everyone is super uneasy, obviously, especially if it's a a pretty hefty layoff. It's like, man, am I next? When's the next one happening? Like you, there's this kind of sense of panic. And then the final thing is like, oh shit, now this person, this person, this person is gone. Who's going to do their work? How is this going to work? What do I focus on now? And when you're on a fast fashion calendar, there's no break. So there's really no time to like be like, okay, hang on, like let's step back and maybe strategize our plan forward. It's just like, well, we got to keep going and it's going to suck. Like, you know, the CEO is always like, I know everyone's going to be taking on more work and well, you know, but I believe in us, blah, 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 blah. Like, I think that's always like my, my, my least favorite thing is like, what the fuck is the CEO going to say about this? And like, Aww. they never have like a good, like tactful response. And I think that was like, honestly, the, the last layoff that I was a part of at ModCloth, that's what I felt the most because like the guy, they were trying, like there were other people in the room. Obviously it wasn't just the new CEO who was like trying to lead the conversation, but like they were essentially the the employees and a few other of like the higher level staff were trying to get him to address the giant ass elephant in the room, which was like, Oh wow. All of our friends are gone. Cause you know, if there was one amazing thing about Modcloth, it would be the camaraderie between people. It really, Oh yeah. Like I met so many amazing people that I have as lifelong friends through that job um, and to sit in the room and look around and just know all the people that aren't there anymore. And 
like he couldn't address it and it was like astounding like say something you know you basically took this company that was this tight-knit family and this group of people that was like the least political of any job i've ever worked at and that remained throughout the years long after susan and eric were gone that that stayed and that was what made it such a magical place and like this guy could not address it and i'm just like that's all anybody wants to hear right now is like man this sucks you know like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. can you just say that and like tip your cap to what an amazing culture is here that you've basically decimated like and he didn't do that and i was just like this left it made my decision when i left like a month later really easy in that way because i was like man like the ethos the energy it's not here anymore and that's the one thing that always kind of kept me there mm-hmm. and it, when it when it left it was just it was it was more sad cuz you're just like i don't when you, when you work for a brand for a while you see it reinvent itself time and time again because that's what you have to do to stay relevant um and mm-hmm. most of the time it just waters down the idea and the brand identity but you know i just didn't have it in me to go through that one more time like i just couldn't do it because I, I didn't know what the brand meant to me anymore, you know? And that, that was mm-hmm. sad. That was a really sad realization, but I was like, I don't have anything that really identifies me with this customer or what, what we're making. Like I didn't believe in it anymore. And although I've worked on plenty of brands and products that I would never wear myself, it doesn't mean you have to do that. But when you actually do work for a brand where you're like, this stuff is cool. Like it, it really makes everything easier. And so it was just extra sad to have lost that. I agree. I mean, I, I cannot emphasize enough how amazing of a place mod class was to work. Everyone was so nice and yes. it just felt it was just so nice to go to work. No politics, no bullying. Mm-hmm. No one was, I don't know. Like, I don't know how such an amazing team of people came together, but at the end of the day, that's how it was, at least in the LA office, you know? Yeah. And I remember when the new CEO came in and he came from my pre my previous company, actually. And uh-huh. that company had a really dark culture. They didn't care about mm-hmm. any of the workers, no matter where they work. Not that that should matter. You either care about your workers or you don't. Well, the good news, I guess, is that they were consistent and they didn't care about anyone who worked for them. No. <laughs> and it was a very political, would be like putting a nice spin on it. Uh, just a really tough work environment, you know, um, and just you felt very disposable. So when he came in, and I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. I remember he immediately took me in a room and wanted to talk to me, like bond with me about how we'd come from the same place. And I was like, this, this is going to be a major shift that I don't like. Um, yeah. And that's how I ended up at Nasty Gal, actually, because Nasty Gal came knocking at the same time. Mm-hmm. And at Nasty Gal, uh, we always had financial problems, like massive financial problems. From my first day there, I definitely got catfished into that job. And like, I cannot emphasize enough. By the time I got there, the ship had been sinking for at least a year and no one knew, no one outside the company knew. And so what was happening is it was a super toxic, very stressful work environment. I cannot even begin to describe how stressful it was to work there, even though 
most of the people I worked with were some of my favorite coworkers ever, much like ModCloth. I'm just like awesome people, but the leadership was just such a nightmare, you know, and you were always on your toes. We were always switching strategies halfway through executing them. So there was always a fire drill. It was always a fire drill. It was very stressful. And the turnover was so bad. I've talked about this with other people who've worked there. Uh, every Friday there would be a going away party for someone who was leaving. I mean, literally wow. every Friday, at least one person, it was their last day. It reached a point. One of my friends was like, I'm so sick of cupcakes and champagne. I don't want to ever have them again because every <laughs> Friday it'd be someone's mm-hmm. going away party and there'd be cupcakes and champagne and usually yep. strawberries. Um, and then <laughs> like it would be Monday again. And then Friday it would be someone else's last day. But rather than laying anybody off, and trust me, the financial problems were so terrible, they just stopped backfilling people mm. who left. And mm-hmm. so in a year, my team, my specific team that I managed went from 20 people to eight. Oh, my God. So wow. imagine the workload. I, 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 I feel like I might need to go throw up just thinking oh, about it that. Was, it was such a nightmare. It was just like... And I felt so bad for the people who were really early in their career because, like, mm, mm-hmm. they were bearing the brunt of it with when it came to, like, entering POs and following up with vendors and stuff. And, you know, like, I was trying to do everything else that I can do, like, to make their lives easier. But it was it was ridiculous. It was just we were all working all the time. And yep. when I was laid off from Nasty Guy, it was purely a fiscal issue. I was one of the most expensive employees. I had to go. But <laughs> at my last job, I will tell you, I was one of the only people laid off from my brand yep. in, during COVID. And uh, it felt very political and very intentional and very painful. And I can tell you that like, that was a decision that was made not just because of how much money I made, but because personally, they just didn't want me there anymore. And at the same time, I think about how all the other people were left behind, not only didn't have me there to help them and teach them and, you know, make their lives easier. Um, they also had to worry if they were going to be next. And that sucks too. Absolutely. That fear. There's nothing like, obviously when you lose your job, it's definitely you're on the, the worst end of a layoff, but it definitely negatively impacts everybody there. Mm -hmm. And there's no escape of, and also it's like such a, a wide scope of what, happens during a layoff, Uh, the emotional ramifications, psychological workload. It's, it's so much deeper. It's, you know, when you look at it on the surface, you're like, oh, well, these people had jobs now they don't, but there's so many other things that you can loop in with that. So, and I I would ask you to see, cause I, I know what my answer would be, but like, how, is there a way to lay off people in a like in a tactful manner because I feel like <laughs> every time it's done it's done differently and it's never oh my gosh yeah well. like you're just like what the fuck were you thinking like the uh, like the last um layoff at Modcloth, they basically sent out two invitations uh and we all got it that morning uh, so either people had a meeting at like 10 or 11 because we started at 10 um, or you had a meeting at two and it was like, well, one of these meetings, people are going to get laid off and the, and it's just like, okay, we'll do the fucking math. Of course, the people in the early meeting are getting laid off. Like we're not dumb. And so everyone started <laughs> like when that meeting began, 
and the people that were left, we I, like I of course am I, I like to snoop via calendars. Obviously, uh, you can find out so much information from. Oh my god, dude! At Modcloth, I would find out so much stuff about people's lives on their calendars because everybody was public. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you would just be like, "Oh shit!" Like, what meeting was this person in? You know, someone who wasn't in your department. You would look up their calendar, and you were able to tell like who was there and who wasn't or if like the next day you were like did that person get laid off i don't know because of course they never sent out a a list or whatever so you know it's just man i don't know like what what was like the worst layoff method that you've been through i mean i almost i'm gonna say the meeting thing is the worst right like that first layoff at ModCloth where we went back to our desks and waited to see if we were getting laid off was pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, when I actually got laid off from Nasty Gal, um, it was it was definitely a weird day. Um, they People were just all of a sudden crying and walking around with boxes and we were all very disoriented. They started with design and then they mm. laid off almost the entire production team and wow. then they came to buying. And so we were last and my team was crying yeah, um, they were so afraid, and I was like, "You're not going to get laid off. Everything's going to be fine." Um, of course, then I got laid off, and then I had to come back out with my whole team there, sobbing, and <sighs> pack up all my stuff oh, at no. like two in the afternoon. It was so terrible. It was like a whole day of agony. So maybe yeah. the meeting version is better, where you do it all at once. I'm not really sure. I, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, when I was laid off from my last job, it was over the phone, Ugh. which. Uh, in some ways was like easier, except like there was no follow-up with me about any of the information. Um, so like I didn't get an email that explained like my severance or anything like that. So I had no idea really what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had to email a whole bunch. So I also got laid off a week early because my boss was going on vacation. Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> so the HR department, well, there's not really an HR department for this company, but whoever was handling all of the terminations or whatever, uh, that person wasn't prepared for it because I had gone a week early. And so no one was responding to any of my emails about like, when can I clean out my desk? You know, I had to ship my computer back to the office. Like when, how was that supposed to be done? Like I had to wait after being laid off another like week or two to get any answers from anyone. And it felt like, yeah, it, that was terrible too. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is. I am. Um, God bless everyone for trying different ways, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think, you know, the meeting thing might, might be the best. It's hard to say best in this scenario. Yeah. I mean, maybe that is the easiest, less stressful for well, everyone. Yeah. I don't know. I have this one job and, uh, really long story short, I had an employee on my team who was, to be fair, a very unpleasant and not hardworking person, but I still had belief that we could turn it around. And Mm -hmm. my boss on, in a Monday leadership meeting said, I want that person gone by Friday. (gasps) Um, so I had to work with like this external HR consultant to figure out how to do it. And my boss had specifically requested that I let this person go at the end of the day on Friday. Oh so we my could get God. Maximum, so we could get maximum work out Stop of this person. It. Oh my God. And I was just like, no, we're not doing that. Are you yeah. kidding me? Like, we're going to do it first thing in the morning. Yeah. And that's, that's what we did. But um, Jesus. I, 
um, having to be the person to let the person go also sucks. Um, yeah. It's just so awkward. And um, I just, there's just, there's just no good way to do it. Period. No. Like I, 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 I don't know, you know, a lot of times when I was working retail, when you had to fire someone, it was because they just like, didn't even show up in the first place. So it was pretty, right. pretty right. painless, you know, <laughs> I'm sure there's someone out there doing research around it. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure there's a LinkedIn article about it that we could look up. Oh God! Um, but because I, I, I think the worst one was at Lucky Brand because we had office. Well, we had desk phones, so everyone had their own desk phone, and people were just sitting at their desks waiting for a call. Oh! It went all the way until like about three in the afternoon, and then they were done, and then they told everyone else okay, you guys can leave for the day. It's like, it was so awful. And like people, and it was just such a weird thing because there were some people that were there that were like, yeah, I hope I get laid off. You know, the people that, some people that hadn't been there for their entire career, but for like a couple years and they were like over it, you know, they're like, take me out. But here I was like, not at the very beginning of my career, but starting to ramp up. And I was like, if I don't have this job, like I had just moved into my own apartment. Like I was terrified. I I was like, seriously, like, how am I going to live? I don't have a roommate anymore. I'm going to have to move out. Like I I was freaking out. And so to see other people being like, yeah, I hope it's me. I was like, uh, but I now totally understand how those people felt because in the very last Bogdan layoff. I was like, "Oh my god, can it please be me? Can you please take me out of this misery?" <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, it's, I it's, remember the first Bogdan layoff. Someone who was leaving, I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna miss seeing you." Blah blah blah, and she was like, "Don't feel sorry for me. I feel sorry for all of you who are left behind." Oh, and I was like, oh. "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mic drop, man." Okay. Yeah, I know. I was like, okay. Okay. Um, that's now I'm stressed. Um, yeah. So I guess what we're saying is apparently the best way to do a layoff is to do the meeting approach. I guess. I guess. So for, for all people listening, the next time you have to conduct a mass layoff, um, I would just, (laughs) I'd recommend doing like simultaneous meetings too. Cause I think that alleviates like, Oh, what is happening to these people in this meeting? You know, it, it just kind of makes it, more linear, I suppose, in the day quicker. Because also, if you are doing a mass layoff, please allow your employees to leave for the rest of the day because it's a lot to take in and you know no one's getting shit done anyways afterwards. Yeah, so yeah. It's usually like you want to go get wasted with the people that did get laid off, which happened and was quite a delight. It was it was a it was a fun ending to a terrible day. <laughs> I was told that when they finally finished all the layoffs at, at Nasty Gal that one day, which, I mean, this was stretching into the afternoon, rather than letting everyone go home, they came out with a popcorn machine. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> um, so that's probably not a good, if you're doing a mass layoff. Um, no. Yeah, I think I think definitely simultaneous meetings is the way to go. I can't even believe we're, like, giving this advice, but it's just, like, based on my experience. Like, even if you didn't get laid off, the – pain is it's just too much it's it's I was like shaking you know Mm -hmm. and like it's very very unsettling and I do think that often the leadership forgets that for the people who are who still have jobs it's also really upsetting like really really upsetting and I just don't think that that's addressed enough no 
Definitely not. And then like at, at the aftermath, it's like you have to figure out how much work, more work you're taking on, you know? And so that's what yeah. like also like there's this huge morale crash, but then once the dust settles a little, you're like, well, fuck, like now I have to do everything. And I already was doing everything. Now I have to do everything and everything. And it's like, it's just so, it's so hard to rebound from a layoff for that reason as well, where it's just like the, the amount of work doesn't change. Like you're still doing the same stuff and the deadlines, Hey, they're still there. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm, you can't mm -hmm. just start to ignore your calendar deadlines. You still have to follow them. And it's just the scramble. It's a super frustrated scramble. So it, even if you hated everyone that got laid off, you still are going to hate your life because you're now going to have to do all their work. Right. Because the, the company's not like, okay, well, we let go, you know, 30% of our staff. So we're going to do 30% less styles. We're gonna, you know what I mean? <laughs> Can like, you imagine? <laughs> I mean, like that would be, that would make sense. Right. But instead it's yeah. like, no, we're going to be full steam ahead. And in fact, to ensure that we aren't in this situation again, let's just add on 30% styles just mm-hmm. to boost sales, you know, yep. and, and we're not going to reschedule anything that's nope. on the calendar for this week. Like you're just going to figure it out. And it is, it's hard. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a delightful way to end our conversation, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, well, I'm, thank you so much, Meredith. It was so fun as always to record with you. Of course. Thank you. I feel like I should send you, you know, like, I don't know, do you want a candy bra or do you want a body stocking? Um, wow. I have, do I have to choose? Everything is like $9.99. <laughs> you can have it all. You can finally have it all. Oh, By the way, amazing. I, I maybe go read those reviews for that candy bra because they're chilling. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> Wasn't it the best to have Meredith back on the show? It's always just such a delight to record with her. And I'll just let you know this now that hopefully I have convinced her to come back for a special, more sustainable Halloween extravaganza episode coming this fall. I'm obsessed with learning and sharing ways we can more sustainably maintain traditions, celebrate holidays create new traditions for ourselves. So there'll be a lot more of that coming as we move through the year. Also, if there is another brand that you are dying to know the history of, uh, drop me a line. Uh, It might inspire me to do another episode about a brand. I'm kind of thinking that I'd like to do one episode per month that is just sort of a history lesson about one of the brands that surrounds us. So send it my way. Those are always kind of fun. As a lot of you know, over the past year, I've been getting more and more involved with activism around the unemployment system, which means that I've had to do a lot of reading about the history of unemployment insurance in the U.S., as in the benefits that you receive when you lose your job. We've talked about this in the past. I'm not going to go too deeply into it. But I was really intrigued to discover that when it was created as part of the New Deal, FDR and his administration realized that most of the job losses, especially larger scale job losses that were happening in the United States, were happening due to mass layoffs 
like those Meredith and I were discussing. Just workers losing their jobs, not because they had poor performance or kept falling asleep at the cash register. I definitely had that coworker. Their jobs were simply eliminated to preserve profitability for their employers. I'm sure you're tired of hearing me say this, and I don't want this to be my signature catchphrase, but it's exactly what happened to me and tons of other workers in the early days of the pandemic. Large companies completely panicked about falling sales and just started cutting people loose with the expectation that they would replace those workers with lower paid, less experienced employees when things got better. It's all about profits over people. 2020 was a terrible year, right? Economists estimate that at least 100,000 small businesses permanently closed in the United States in the first two months of the pandemic. And in general, 2020 is considered one of the most economically tumultuous times in the last century. But this is very interesting. Between April and September of 2020, 45 of the 50 most valuable publicly traded U.S. companies turned a profit. That's according to analysis by the Washington Post. But here's the catch. At least 27 of those 50 companies had layoffs last year, collectively cutting more than 100,000 workers. Then they redistributed that money that would have been paychecks for these workers, they redistributed it to shareholders. For example, Walmart distributed more than $10 billion to its investors during the pandemic while simultaneously laying off 1,200 corporate office employees. Now, Walmart says, hey, we offered those people other jobs, but they wouldn't mention well, were those jobs the same level of pay, the same level of benefits? They didn't go into that. Berkshire Hathaway raked in profits of $56 billion during the first six months of the pandemic, while also laying off more than 13,000 workers. Nike, Comcast, and PayPal were among the other companies that turned a profit while laying off workers. And as I've mentioned, the company that laid me off a week later published an earnings report declaring a, quote, surprise $34 million profit for that quarter. I'm going to share the link to the Washington Post article where I got all of this information. It's really fascinating. And of course, companies that didn't make a profit also laid people off. But isn't it interesting that you could still make that kind of profit, like Berkshire Hathaway making $56 billion while laying off a ton of employees. It's not good. Lots of people lost their jobs in 2020, at least 22 million people. It's hard to fully track who lost their jobs because unemployment numbers are based on who is filing for unemployment which means a lot of other people fall through the cracks who did lose their jobs as well. For example, people who forced themselves to retire early, they can't file for unemployment. People who didn't have a long enough work history, didn't work enough hours, those people aren't eligible for unemployment. And people who have health issues or childcare concerns that prevent them from being, quote, willing and able to work, those people aren't included in that 22 million either. 
Now we're in a weird time where there still aren't enough jobs to go around, no matter what you hear. And people who are somehow making more on unemployment don't want the low-paying jobs that they had before the pandemic. And for you to be making more off of unemployment than you were from your job, it means that you were previously working a job that paid less than $15 an hour. And you most likely weren't offered full-time hours and benefits because when we talk about the number of jobs out there, when we talk about people being unemployed versus employed, we don't talk about the amount of hours they get to work at your job. their job. You can work 20, 25 hours at a job and be considered employed, but is that enough to make a living? In many cases, no. These jobs primarily are in food service and retail. So... Companies who have been paying low wages for years are now being forced to increase wages to get workers. That's just simple capitalist supply and demand. And it's one of the rare instances in which supply and demand works in favor of the worker rather than than the employer. Because if you need more workers because the supply is low, you have to pay more. Chipotle a place you're all familiar with, I'm sure, and other food and retail companies are making a big show of increasing prices, ostensibly to cover the cost of increasing wages for workers. Most of the people making your burritos and burrito bowls at Chipotle are not making a living wage. On average, they make about $13 an hour, but they rarely receive 40 hours a week. In fact, the median Chipotle restaurant worker's income in 2020 was $13,127, which is not enough to live on, right? What if you have children? I mean, I, I, can't, I can't with this. But once again, Chipotle is like, oh, it's so hard to hire people to come and work here and make $13,000 a year. It's so unfair. I'm going to argue otherwise. <laughs> so... Chipotle is saying that they will raise prices 4% to cover the increasing labor costs. And at first, that sounds intimidating because Chipotle has been throwing that number, that 4% out in press releases under the assumption, and this assumption might be accurate, that the average American isn't great at calculating percentages, possibly just because the average American hasn't had a job with an employee discount, so they haven't had tons of practice calculating how much each item in the store would be with their discount. Fortunately, I have a lot of experience there, so I can calculate a percentage pretty fast. Chipotle is capitalizing off the idea that no one will bother to do the math, that they'll just hear 4% and they'll be outraged. Because 4% sounds like a lot for about five seconds until you realize that an $8 burrito would become $8.32. That's right. A 4% cost increase there is 32 cents. Would you be willing to pay 32 cents if it meant the workers making your food would have a slightly better life? I know I would. Of course, I also know that even if these Chipotle employees get a raise, they're probably still not going to get full-time and benefits. So it still sucks. But let's talk about the real issue here. It's not increasing wages for employees. It's not paying restaurant workers $15 an hour, which we should do, right? The deeper financial issue is a lot bigger. 
It involves a significantly larger paycheck. Chipotle CEO Brian Nicole made $38 million in 2020. You read that and you think, well, CEOs, they make a lot of money. We all know that. I wanted to get some context. So I I looked at some other large food service companies that I felt like would have a similar customer overlap, similarly large business with locations all over the country. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson was paid $14.7 million. It's hefty paycheck. It's less than half of what the CEO of Chipotle was paid. Okay, but what about McDonald's? I mean, they're everywhere. Their CEO, Chris Kemzinski, received $10.8 million. So less than a third of Brian Nicole. Once again, Brian Nicole made $38 million. In 2020, he made $38 million while global poverty actually grew. His compensation was 2,898 times more than the median Chipotle worker's pay. In 2020, the pay ratio of CEOs to workers averaged 830 to 1, according to the Institute for Policy Studies. So let's remember that number too, 830 to 1. There's obviously a major wage gap happening at Chipotle, who's coming in far above the median average with 2,898 times. And one can't help but wonder if maybe pulling back on executive salaries would have, could have prevented that 4% price increase. In fact, aren't we really just enabling the CEO to continue to make wild amounts of money by agreeing to pay that extra 32 cents? I'm fine with paying extra for my burrito when I know it's going to go into the pockets of the workers. But as I mentioned earlier, I would love to see Chipotle workers get full-time hours and benefits, which would mean chipping away at executive compensation. And it seems like they have a pretty big pile of money to pull that from. I'm seeing so much, there's no other better noun for this, propaganda out there about how raising wages will raise prices for all of us. It's merely a PR campaign to get consumers to turn on low-wage workers, to divide the working class. This is a great time to mention that actually, Chipotle has been threatening for a while to raise prices if the $15 minimum wage was passed. They were just waiting for a moment to raise prices. Now they're doing it because ostensibly they have to pay workers more to get them to take the jobs. A lot of other restaurants and retailers have been threatening the same exact thing. The idea on their end is, hey, consumers, do you really want to pay more money? Of course not. So don't back the higher minimum wage. But the reality is that paying a living wage doesn't really impact prices at the individual customer level very much. A study from California State University in San Bernardino found that for a minimum wage increase of 10%, food prices increased by just 0.36%. That's less 
than one whole percentage point. That's significantly less than the 4% increase that Chipotle is instituting. And even that 4% increase is not that much, right? So using that same analysis from the California State University in San Bernardino, this would mean that raising food service worker wages from $10 to $15 would increase the cost of our meals less than 1%. That's literally a penny per dollar. You would have to buy a $100 meal to pay one additional dollar to cover that wage increase. Why all the threats about increased pricing to pay increased wages? Because in fact, analysts say that if someone like Chipotle is threatening to raise prices, are you ready for this? It's actually because food prices are going up. Yes, that makes way more sense, right? Especially things like avocados and corn, which are getting more expensive, are definitely gonna get more expensive as climate change accelerates and have even gotten more expensive during the pandemic. They wanna pass that cost on to the customer to maintain that profitability and those executive bonuses. But blaming it on workers' wages rather than the rising cost of food is a more compelling story. Because somehow Chipotle wants us to both resent the workers for receiving a living wage and recognize that a living wage is a good reason for higher prices. Their assumption there is that we're all intrinsically good people. We'll suck it up and pay the extra 4% to pay someone's wages. But if they said it was actually because avocados are more expensive, we would all be kind of like, fuck you. Why don't you just take down your executive salaries or, you know, whatever. It's a strange psychology. It makes sense to me. It it makes me mad at Chipotle (laughs) for not being honest with us. This is also a great time to remind you, because I haven't mentioned this in a while, that if the people who made our clothing, shoes, and accessories were paid a living wage, the prices of the things we buy would only increase at most 4 to 5%. So we're talking 40 to 50 cents for a $10 t-shirt. That's a really small price to pay when you know that others are going to have a better life because of it. Meanwhile, the Economic Policy Institute says that enormous CEO pay is, quote, a major contributor to rising inequality that we could safely do away with. Remember, the pay ratio of CEOs to workers averaged 830 to 1 in 2020, according to the Institute for Policy Studies. For some context there, In 1965, the CEO-to-worker compensation ratio was 20 to 1, and it has been slowly rising, especially since the 80s. And it's really at its highest point in the history of the United States. Let's talk about that for a moment. Are we saying that the value of a CEO is 830 times that of the average worker, but somehow in 1965, it was only 20 to 1? CEOs have increased in value while worker value has been static or decreased. That doesn't make any sense at all. Or in Chipotle's case, is the CEO, Brian Nicole, 2,898 times more valuable than the workers in his restaurants? Because that ratio also feels wrong to me. 
I get that being a CEO is a lot of responsibility. It requires years of experience. It requires skill, dedication, creative problem solving, along with leadership skills, public speaking. But is it 2,898 times the skill of a restaurant worker? I would say, well, no. And what we really see here is a blend of classism, racism, sexism, and ableism all wrapped into one package. Because our current system is saying that these people, often cis white men, are exponentially more valuable than the people whose labor keeps the company rolling. The Economic Policy Institute said, quote, this escalation of CEO compensation and of executive compensation more generally has fueled the growth of top 1% and top 0.1% incomes, leaving less of the fruits of economic growth for ordinary workers. I would ask you, the listeners, you ordinary workers, well, we're all ordinary workers here, Don't you want some of those fruits of economic growth? Do you think a CEO is 830 times more valuable than you? 2,898 times more valuable? Where do you, your experience, your talents, where do you relate in terms of value to a CEO? I would argue that yes, it makes sense that a CEO makes more money than an entry-level employee, of course, But all workers should be paid a living wage, or that business shouldn't exist at all. In fact, if you're a CEO who has to lay off workers to preserve profitability, or has to raise prices just to pay a living wage, I think you might not deserve any pay at all, because clearly you're trying to run a business that has a terrible model. And what's the value in that? Thanks for listening to another episode of Clothes Horse. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. I'm still collecting work stories. We're going to be having labor month till the end of time. And specifically for next week, I would like to do an episode with all of the retail worker stories. So please send your stories my way. You can email me, you can call the Close Horse Hotline, or you can record a voice memo on your phone or computer and send it my way. I want to hear your retail stories. Also, do you have any suggestions about the best way to lay someone off? Have you been laid off yourself? I want to hear about all that too. And of course, your message can be anonymous. Just let me know. Don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with Kim. We're doing some really cool and interesting stuff over there these days. And thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.